Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing chapter 6 through 10 of The Amber Spyglass, the third book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. Chapter 6, Father McPhail and the Consistorial... I'm just going with that. That was right. No, I'm pretty sure I put in an extra syllable, but it's fine. (laughs) Court are gathering information and planning their next moves. They must destroy Dust, capital D, and they must kill Lyra before she can play her role as Eve, being tempted, falling, and letting sin triumph. Father Gomez eagerly volunteers for the latter task. He has been doing preemptive penance his whole life just in case the magisterium needed an assassin to be pre-absolved for murder. I had so much difficulty with all of those words. (laughs) (laughs) Lyra tells Roger about all the people she has helping her as he fades away from her perception. In Chapter 7, Mary Malone has been having fun wandering around Jagatza. Everyone is super nice to her because her presence scares away the spectres. She uses the I Ching stalks and book to try and communicate with dust. A reference to openings inspires her to cross through a window between worlds that she finds soon after. This new world is filled with giant trees and several species of large animals with four legs arranged in a diamond formation. One of these species, the Malefa, has an elephant-like trunk, is clearly sapient and capable of speech, and uses the pods from the trees as a wheel to roll around on for transport. After briefly getting to know each other, the Malefa signaled to Mary to hop on one of their backs and wheel her off into the sunset. In Chapter 8, Balthamos is overcome with grief and memory when he feels Baruch's death. After regaining his senses, he pledges to help Will in whatever way he can, in honor of Baruch. They continue to make their way toward Lyra, walking through her world Siberia, with Balthamos pretending to be Will's demon. They encounter a priest, who peer pressures Will into drinking some vodka and warns him that there are armored bears besieging a town nearby from their boat. When Will and Baltimos reach the town, the bears and humans are mid-battle. Will gets the humans and bears to both agree that if he can defeat the bears' leader in combat, the humans will let the bears peacefully refuel and pass through on the river, and the bears will stop attacking. Will asks to borrow a piece of armor from the bear and uses the subtle knife to cut it into tiny, tiny pieces. The bear leaders surrender and then ask to see the knife. Will says he will only show it to York Burnison, knowing, of course, that this bear is in fact York. 
In chapter nine, Yorick and Will bond over how cool his knife is and how much they both care about Lyra, while they continue cruising down the river toward the mountains. Eventually, they reach a valley where the river becomes too shallow for the boat to continue onward. They disembark, and Yorick releases the bears to go off and be solitary bears in the snowy mountains until he calls them back for war or return to the Arctic. Yorick and Will set off together to find Lyra. Meanwhile, Lord Azriel's Gyropter force and the Magisterium's fleet of zeppelins are also flying toward Lyra, and aboard one of the zeppelins are two of Lord Azriel's Galavespian spies and their dragonfly mounts. In chapter 10, Father Gomez chats up the, the children of Sitagatsa. Chitagatsa, uh, my apologies. <laughs> asking about Mary Malone, the knife, Will, and Lyra. Meanwhile, Mary and the Malefa continue to get to know each other better. They bring her to their village where they live in huts. Mary gradually begins to learn and speak their language, which uses a combination of sounds and trunk gestures. She learns how to craft their fishing nets, working in pairs to tie knots with their trunks, and how their society is structured. Then, one afternoon, the Malefa are attacked by gigantic terror birds. The birds raid all the edible food stored in the village and throw most of the seed pods into the river where they float away. After they leave, the Malefa return and begin cleaning up the mess, and tell Mary about how the seed pods used to be plentiful, but something happened many years ago, and now the wheel pod trees are all dying. Yeah, this was a long one. Yeah, there was a lot going on. Yeah. Although in some ways there was not that much going on, but mm. it bothered me less than it did previously. In the first couple chapters, I read them and I'm just like... Oh man, somebody needed to edit these like a lot. But this one's I'm just like, well, we should have taken out that bit with the priest. <laughs> like Well, we'll why come was... to that bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but other than that, I my general feelings in case you haven't realized that we've moved on to that section, uh is that I liked all of this and I do feel like it could have been tightened up a bit in the writing, but other than that, I love Mary. I love the Mulefa. I love Will and Yorick together. And we didn't have anything with Alma, who was useless. So <laughs> she is mentioned plus, once, but aside from she's that, she's mentioned once, just for God like a timeline sync yes. up, though. Exactly, just just a little callback to mm -hmm. an irrelevant character who never comes up again. Spoilers. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. I really enjoyed this section. It was a mix of interesting things happening. Didn't get too bogged down. Could have been a little bit edited down, but didn't feel too clunky. So yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, this is all mostly world building, which is like the whole reason that I read fantasy. So like who cares about characters or plot? <laughs> I, I just want to read lore books. And so this is we get a lot of like nuance that comes through in these chapters too about like the structure of the magisterium. And so I just love all that stuff. And the plot standing still for a little bit is okay for me because there's so much world building. Yeah, I pretty much agree with everything that you guys have said. There are so many characters at this point um, that it kind of makes selecting chapter sections for this podcast hard because every time we get, I like look and see what the next chapter is. I'm like, oh, but we haven't seen that character yet, you know, or like, let's just one more, just one more. Um, so maybe it's my fault that we're doing, we're like kind of galloping through this part. Um, but yeah, I guess because there's not much plot happening um it's like it's really fun and enjoyable but i 
I'm wanting to just like keep us going, I guess. Um, I'm glad that the Lyra and Roger conversations are over, um, especially like the more fragmented and shorter that they get, the less I like them. It's like annoying having to flip back in the book to the last section and like figure out where it, you know, left off from. And then it they're like not really delivering that much anymore. So I'm glad that that has finally petered out. I wish you could see the look on my face. Because <laughs> <laughs> these Will and Lyra sections are the ones that are delivering good stuff. Wait, okay. Let's fight about this. I literally <laughs> didn't read them. <laughs> <laughs> Just skip it. Yeah, I did. Okay, so, I mean, there's really just one bit that's important. And it's when Roger says, you know, I knew, I forget exactly what he says, but, like, because you're Lyra. And then Lyra realizes what that means and the faith that Roger has in her, right? And that that she won't just abandon him. And then Mm. at the end of that conversation, she says, because he's Will. Mm. In the same way. Yeah, I don't feel like I missed anything. So it's like it's, an it's like important character moment. I don't know. It's showing that like I'm she. Sure it is. It's showing <sighs> that she has the same faith in Will that Roger has in Lyra. Yeah. Right, and I'm. What blind and fairly insubstantiated. <sighs> <laughs> wow! Wow! No, I mean, I get what you're saying, but I think that it doesn't land because literally all it just says. And he's Will or whatever, you know, it's like in order for that to land, you have to go back and reread the previous version. And then in order to understand that, you almost have to go back and like reread the one before that. No, I understand what you're saying. You're 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 right. I've just read this book a lot and I don't forget the previous conversations. I see. You know? Yeah. So they don't feel that disjointed to me. That's my own fault. (laughs) Yes, definitely a fault. (laughs) Okay, favorite parts? Uh, I have a lengthy one, so I will go. I guess I was just thinking about psychology this week. I kind of had this weird view of Will's arc through these chapters about his relationship with Bartholomew is um, kind I'm of sorry. like his... Is his name I'm, Bartholomew? Oh, I don't even know. Because I've, <laughs> I've been messed up by Anya being like, no, it's Balthazar. And it's, <laughs> I, I nearly wrote I don't even know. Black Sheep just for fun. <laughs> Yeah, just be Balthamos. Balthamos. Okay. Right? So, like, I I listened to it, and so I'm like, yeah, it's a bee angel. And so, like, it's Baruch <laughs> and the so other bee angel. My phrase, bee angel, has caught on. Yeah. A bee angel. Uh, yeah. Bee angel. <laughs> I'm so glad that we will not be in any way, shape, or form in, in danger of not mispronouncing things. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally. I'm bad with names anyway. Like, I can't even remember people's names in my life who like i see that's why we have to say our names at the top of every podcast yeah so that i know what's happening yes um so yeah will's relationship with balthamos is it reminds me of his relationship with his mother insofar as like his mother loses her partner you know his father I don't think that it's the primary cause of her mental dysfunction but i think it contributes really heavily to it and his fragility over losing Baruch, which I love how fragile he is. To me, it like really mirrors uh, Will's relationship with his mother. 
in a way that is kind of therapeutic because he doesn't have the same kind of reliance on the angel as he does with his mother. He doesn't he doesn't need the angel. And so it mirrors the relationship, but it allows him to put his needs first, if that makes sense. And instead, Will can focus on some of his own needs. And there's something therapeutic in like recapitulating that relationship but doing it in a different way that Will focuses on himself. I don't think that any of this is necessarily intentional. And then in like the same way, Will goes on an adventure with Yorick to rescue Lyra. And these are like, it, doing that is the exact kind of fantasy that he had about his father. You know, when he was young, you would think about like, oh, I'll meet my dad one day. We'll go on Arctic adventures. Here's this father figure who's from the Arctic and he's going on an adventure to save his best friend. And there's something therapeutic in that too, because when he met his father, like it was a huge disappointment and everything went wrong. And so like these relationships are not exactly the same, but I think that Will is healing in some ways here in the beginning of the book that are important for him. Wow, that's really insightful and not something that I saw at all while I was reading this. So I'm glad you brought it up. I also love Will and Yorick meeting for a lot of reasons. I feel like it's a good opportunity to see the similarities between them, which is a weird thing to say about a kid and a bear. I guess it kind of shows that Lyra has like a type of person that she likes to care about. Mm. Yeah, I really like that it shows Will's competence and like his mm -hmm. his cleverness in putting together the plan. Will and Yorick immediately like see each other. And yeah. respect each other. Yeah. Like, I don't think York would ever have the easy um, affection for Will that he does for Lyra, but they have an almost immediate respect for each other. And it kind of feels like Will is meeting Lyra's dad. Yeah. Without Lyra there to, like, introduce <laughs> them. And sometimes your friend's parents can have a therapeutic effect for your bad relationship with your parents. I just feel like they're good for each other. And yeah, the meeting is, like, fabulous. It's the highlight so far of the book, I think. Uh, I also really love Mary and the Mulefa, which is done so incredibly well because it's so separate from the rest of the story. It has nothing to do with this, like, growing danger that is heading towards Lyra and, like, who's going to get there first, Asriel, the church, or Will and York. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's, like, this growing feeling of danger there. It has absolutely nothing to do with that, but I don't care. Like, when we cut away to Mary, I'm not like, oh, can we get back to the plot? I'm, I never feel that way. I always feel, yes, give me more of this interesting world exploring and what's happening with her and how does this all meet up. And that is really good writing to not make you feel like, why are we concentrating on something completely different than this tension that you're trying to build over here? That's a good point. Unless other people don't feel that way. <laughs> or, like, feel exactly how I just described Unless it. Unless other feel. people are wrong. Yeah, you're right. I think the two biologists yeah. feel actually very similarly, you know, Surprise. not only is it <laughs> not only is it really interesting and good writing, it's thought provoking and intriguing as someone who is trained in biology, you know, the idea of what other life forms would look like. Um, I mean, there's this whole thing in evolutionary biology about the rewinding the tape recorder of life or something. You can tell it was made in the 80s. Yeah. But like, <laughs> you know, 
because in evolutionary biology, you can't do the same types of experiments that you can in other areas of biology. And so there's often this like thought experiment of like what would happen if you could rewind to the tape recorder of life and replay it. And would things play out exactly the same way? How would they be different? Um, and so any, you know, work of fiction that talks about extraterrestrial life or parallel universes, it's asking kind of like that same question. Pullman's answer, like I might not necessarily believe it biologically, and I think Francis and I will get to that later. Oh, we will. <laughs> but I do find it really like interesting and fun anyway. Yeah, I mean, there is an element of, though there is a philosophical question about determinism somewhere buried deep in there, but probably not one we're going to come to today. And then the other thing that I really liked was just Father Gomez's storyline. Um, it doesn't take up too much space, but it's just delightfully creepy and unsettling. Um, and so I guess we can maybe talk about that more later in the religion section. But I I liked the way Pullman handled that as well. Yeah, I was, um, for, for favorite parts, I was exactly the same boat. I felt that the intrigue of the science of how um, the kind of Malefa's world works is very interesting as a biologist, which again, we'll come to later. Okay, so least favorite parts. The priest. If if like yep. there was a small town in front of the bigger town, but Will could have just that he could have taken out that small town, and Will could have just walked into the big town and seen the fight, and nothing, not not a single thing in this book would be different. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. I guess I was thinking about like what purpose does it serve at all? Like the only two things I think that matter at all and they don't even matter that much are basically you know he pulls out the atlas so we figure out that we are in lyra world's equivalent of siberia and then i think giving will a heads up that there are armored bears is a little bit helpful i mean he could have just come up with his brilliant plan on the fly and like to some extent he did because he didn't know exactly what the situation was but I do kind of like that it shows that Will is drunk. <laughs> not drunk. I was I was like gonna say clairvoyant, but that's not right either. But just that he's like um intuitively like understanding and, and like making these connections. Well, Will is a planner, which is very different than Lyra. Right. So that yeah. is interesting. But it doesn't really mean anything when they're not together. I don't know. I still, I think that having, giving Will the opportunity to plan shows something about his character and is helpful. But I do completely agree that the Russian priest should have been a much smaller character. He should have just been there to deliver exposition. And then that's it. Well, actually, either bigger or smaller. He didn't need to be there. But also, if you've got him in, at least make him relevant. There's no point in him. So yeah. why do we have him? But just to everybody listening, I think for the first time ever, all four of us wrote down the exact same thing as our the least favorite thing. part. Yeah. And I don't know why Anya has decided to defend it, because she wrote it down too. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. 
We are all in agreement, but we're going to argue about it anyways. This also feels kind of like Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) I do agree that this was the worst part and it was my least favorite part. But I just feel like it's worth pointing out that it's not that it's accomplishing nothing. And like, okay, we haven't given Alan a chance to speak yet, but he was the one who actually wrote down that this was too little or too much. And I completely agree that it was too much, but I'm trying to point out what are the bare minimum useful things that I feel like if we're going to throw out the bathwater, what is the tiny, tiny baby that is left? No, throw out the baby as well. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I mean, I think you could do the Atlas thing on the boat with the bears. They could just roll out a map and be like, here's where we're going. And then he's like... In fact, when he gets off the boat somebody gives them a map so. right and so you don't need that and then but by you know, the time I, they get off the boat they're like in the himalayas so that's a little different no when they get on the boat in russia it, that's when you roll out the map and then when he enters the town it'd be like everybody's upset why are you upset there's armored bears and then boom you've you've accomplished the baby in those two motions with cutting out the russian but i think the russian is here more because there were ongoing scandals throughout the 90s, and this stretches far back before the 90s, you know, way back. And after. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. With Catholic priests drugging children with alcohol and then molesting them. And so this situation does not go into that space. I think it is a reference to that space, but I think because of the constraints of the YA genre and what is quote unquote appropriate for that genre it does not go into that space explicitly and therefore like it it just feels like inappropriate to me to bring this up and then not explore the space after you bring it up like i feel like it does not go too it doesn't go far enough if you're going to bring this up or it's like too much in the ways that we've said like where it just spends a lot of time doing nothing i mean i agree completely with everything you said but also i don't think that what this book needs is for will to be molested by a priest because sexual trauma is its whole thing that should not be like a b plot and a or even a d plot it's really like what that would be in a book like this you know so i don't mean that this should become like an event of molestation, which is then quickly dropped. Like I would want the serious emotional and psychological consequences of that to play out across the rest of the book. But like, because you're not doing that, don't do it at all. Like, don't bring this up if you're not going to do it is I guess what I mean. It's just weird that it's here. Like, I appreciate that it's here and that he wants to acknowledge this. That's what it feels like to me. But there's like a restraint due to the publishing conventions of the genre. It feels very much like this is a scene where he wanted to show us again how evil the church is in this world. Uh, yeah. But like, he just sent an assassin after Lyra. He, he, like, <laughs> right. he, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's not needed. Yeah. yeah. Um. All right, so for problematics, I'm the only one who wrote something down. And again, it's not, it's not really a problematic, but it's just something that I find a lot of fantasy authors do when you're exploring other worlds. If it's populated with two different types of people, like a Mulefa and or a Galavespian, those people are all good. And and then there's a bad people, like the Tuolafi, or in the Galavespian world, like the, the people like us, they're all bad. Mm-hmm. And like there's not one bitch Mulefa. Right. You know, like there's not one good Tuolafi. 
like the whole species is we're just writing them off yeah that's that's pretty I shitty agree. and just to be clear the tulapi or what i call terror birds in the summaries i have no idea if i'm saying that right in my mind because of our podcast they were giant geese <laughs> that just shit on everything <laughs> they do just shit on everything i didn't yeah. put that in the summary but so i it's just lazy writing in my mind but i also understand where he doesn't really have time for it okay so science science I just wanted to point out that we did, in fact, get the information this week that Galvespians do have much shorter lifespans than humans, um, which makes sense based on their body size. Uh, Larger animals also tend to have longer lifespans. Smaller animals have smaller lifespans. Um, And it has to do with, like, metabolic rate, blah, blah, blah. Um, We don't have to get into it. But it is cool that um, Pullman included that relevant bit of biology and then actually thinks about the impact that it would have on the characters the only issue i did have with it was that they say that they die in the prime of their life which just doesn't make sense biologically at all oh yeah that there should always be senescence like you'll senesce like that's the point of dying dying is when your body can't keep itself going anymore but it doesn't just stop that most of the time no, that's a very good point. And I actually did side-eye that part, too. I suspect that's like a um, an aesthetic thing. Like, he just didn't want old Galvespians following the kids around. That's a bit of a spoiler, but you know what I'm saying. Also, like, old people riding dragonflies, that would look so cool. It would look right. Yeah, exactly. I think it'd be awesome. Uh, can we commission some fan art now? Long white hair. And just like Just like wizards on dragonflies. That's what I want. Not giving a shit, like can't see enough to really fly it properly. All of their, you know, all of their progeny are like, oh my God, can you just not, you've crashed your fourth dragonfly this week. It's <laughs> like, I'm fine, fuck off. Dragonflies are also their service animals. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> right, other other sciencey things. Let's talk about the Malef- Malefa, whatever they're called, and uh, their world, because there's a few things I wanted to talk about here. First of all, if you get large trees and large animals, that usually means there's a lot of oxygen. We've seen that in the history of the Earth through kind of the fossil record. The megafauna were happening when the oxygen levels were like 35%. Bear in mind, they're now about 20%. You get in big trees, you can only get big trees because you've got a lot of oxygen. Giving us an idea of where this alternate universe world is... It puts it sort of, I, I would say the late Paleocene, but I, that because that's when he got kind of the really large dinosaurs. Question. Just before the big old extinction. Yeah. Would Mary have trouble breathing there? Or like, would it affect Ooh. her at all? It probably would affect her. Yeah, there's something weird about it. I can't remember exactly what it does. Maybe it changes the amount of oxygen you can absorb or something. I'd need to look that one up. There is something called oxygen toxicity or oxygen poisoning. It can cause coughing and trouble breathing. And in severe cases, it can even cause death. Um, I love Anya's note here about how she can't figure out how they use the wheels based on the text. Because I've never been able to figure it out either. And I've been reading this book since I was 14. (laughs) And I just can't wrap my head around it. So as far as I can tell, they sort of pinch the seed pod between two parts of a specialized claw. But it's okay. It says they pinch it with their f- with their front and their back leg, 
Which means the wheel should be rolling sideways, not front and back. No, they have two wheels. They Wait, they have two? They have a front and a back wheel. Yeah, because right. one of them damages the front wheel. Right. So they hold one in front. Oh. They're like a motorbike. I can get my head around that, sure. But like, how long are their claws? How how are they balancing? They say they're specialized. Um, <laughs> they say they're specialized. <laughs> yeah, they, they literally do. They say these look like really highly evolved claws specifically designed to do this oh i see okay so i was thinking that each seed pod wheel had two claws in it but each seed uh wheel has actually just one claw in it so it's like one claw is the axle okay i guess i was imagining them as like grasping it but no okay that makes sense so the claw is the axle. They have like the front wheel, the back wheel, and then and it's lubricated by the oil. And then the their seat. side legs are like pushing skateboard, pushing them along. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Pretty much. Okay. I like I get that in theory, but I just I've never been able to picture it properly or understand how they're not tipping over or. Have you, I mean, I guess can you ride a bike. Me? Um, yes. (laughs) Kind of, sort of. Right. I mean, like, I know how. I have done it in the past. I'm not good at it. The one thing, the other thing I did want to pick up on briefly is a diagonal shaped body structure makes fucking no sense. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely zero sense. Can confirm. If you go through the very... The very basics, I mean, I say the very basics, I I do recognize, you know, I am a trained biologist, but evolutionary and developmental biology pretty much entirely precludes that sort of way of differentiation. So when you basically at a fetal level, these patterns have to be formed. Now, they usually form across uh, concentration gradients within the Uh, zygote and those concentration gradients would be really really hard to form in a diagonal structure they're usually very linear i mean i guess the diamond shape they're technically still bilaterally symmetrical but not in the same biological way that like we usually mean bilateral symmetry unless they have two bones in each front and back leg which they could but unless they had that, I cannot see how you could, like, no matter which way you cut them, you're basically always going to be slicing through a bone. And that just doesn't happen for mammals, at least. I mean, even if you're looking down to kind of geophilomorpha and millipedes and centipedes and uh, wood lice, things like that, they develop even simpler. Like, you're getting so complex, just so many things could go wrong. I mean, it would have to be some sort of, like, extension of the spine itself, right? Because that's what a tail is. And that's kind of, like, the only equivalent for something, for, like, appendages that are on the midline like that. There's there's very few things, which especially things which are prehensile. I guess, yeah, the spine. So if you're considering that to be an extension of the spine, maybe. I just, I don't see... Like that's when you when you're looking at a spine, it's the same thing repeated again and again and again. That's why we have vertebrae. Mm-hmm. With if you were putting a leg on the end, that 
Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It like it's so much complexity, and then you're also building outwards and then inwards again. Like you got you, technically yes, but realistically, dear God, no. And we're not even getting into the fact that like if they are mammalian, then they're probably live birth. If they're live birth, then having it really fat in the middle, it's gonna get tricky. Like this is so much, which doesn't make any sort of sense. <laughs> But it's fun. Oh, it's fun as fuck. It's fun nonsense, yeah. Yeah, it's it's completely nonsensical. If there is something which has a diamond body plan, please write in to us. I would love to learn more. And then the one thing that I wanted to just briefly touch on is this idea of co-evolution between the mulefa and the tree with the seed pods. Um, Mary Malone kind of wonders, you know, like, what came first, the claw... Or the seed pods, you know, they can only break open if they have been used for transport over these roads for long periods of time. But just in general, a lot of times when you're trying to figure out, like, the reason behind the evolution of complex structures or weird co-evolutionary relationships that it seems like a real chicken-egg problem, the answer is often that you have structures that evolve for some other purpose and then that get co-opted for something else. My guess would be that the Mulefa Clause evolved for some other purpose. That to me makes more sense than the seed pods somehow evolving to be super robust. I don't know. So like, for example, the seed pods are like super hard and durable so that they are difficult for the bird life forms to crack open mm-hmm. before they're mature. And therefore, the like durability of them made them useful to the Malefa for running away from the birds yeah. you know, more quickly. Yeah, exactly. There is precedence for plants trying to like encourage one organism over another. So capsaicin, the chemical that makes peppers taste hot. So birds do not have capsaicin receptors and mammals do. Mammal digestive systems are a bit more harsh. And so basically, if a human eats a pepper, our digestive system will destroy the seed so that when we poop it out, it is inactivated and not viable. Whereas bird digestive systems, for whatever reason, don't kill the seeds and deactivate them. So the reason why chili peppers have capsaicin is to discourage mammals from eating them. But then birds that don't have the receptors, they don't perceive the hotness, they can eat the peppers all day and then poop out the viable seeds um, wherever they go. And just to be clear, you're not like advocating for some kind of biological teleology, just to use our buzzword. Oh, uh, you're right. We didn't use it last episode. Now I'm retroactively <laughs> very sad. <laughs> Where you're saying like the capsaicin is meant to do blah, 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 but that it does that. And therefore the evolutionary pressure is has the least resistance in that direction for this kind of selection. Yeah. Like the right. plant does not intend or nature does not intend. It just does. So capsaicin along with mint and various other things. Uh, These all trigger various combinations of the temperature receptors. That's why they feel hot or cold. Now, birds have different temperature receptors. 
and they don't have the ones that are triggered by capsaicin or they don't have all of the ones that are triggered by capsaicin um but mint triggers uh different ones it triggers some of the ones that are more linked to cold but that's why icy hot exists icy hot is literally triggering both the hot and cold ones at the same time which is why it's completely weird feeling same as if you mix mint and pepper then you get something that's cold and hot all at the same time very weird very cool um and i feel like we have now <laughs> made this the equivalent of alan's religion section <laughs> perfect so let's <laughs> go on to so the let's move section. on yeah <laughs> i saw uh, a lot of connections to the uh, paradise lost poem that inspired the title of his dark materials Um, and has been variously quoted in this book. So Mary going into the world of the Mulefla reminds me a lot of Satan going into the Garden of Eden um, from the poem. And I'm going to quote here from Paradise Lost. This is, um, I think, from book four, around line 140. It says... And overhead upgrew insuperable heights of loftiest shade, cedar and pine and fir and branching palm, a sylvan scene, and as the ranks ascend, shade above shade, a woody theater of stateliest view. This is Eden that he's seeing on the horizon, and he's like, fuck, I can't fly in there. They're too fucking huge and tall for me to get in. I'm gonna have to, and I can't go through the gate because that's guarded. I'm going to have to find a window, quote unquote, a window uh, to break into on the side. I'm going to have to find a side entrance. Uh, And he specifically says the word window. And I was like, I wonder if Pullman got his windows from this. Satan thinks while he's going to Eden about how he could have had a different job. And then all of these bad things would not have happened to him if he had not been in the position where he could see that God is a huge hypocrite and that he should be in charge and not God. And... Mary thinks about all the contingencies that get her there to the Mulefa world as she is walking through the gigantic forest, um, except that her meditations are all positive and like, you know, the world could have been different and it could have been something like this. And isn't it weird that I'm the person here and wouldn't it be better for like a biologist to be here? Wouldn't they love this world? And Satan, all of Satan's thoughts are like, contingencies are bad and they suck and they make me miserable and uh, and so there's like a cool inversion there about Pullman is like really emphasizing how contingencies are good and how otherness and possibility is a good thing about the world. And Milton's poem is really emphasizing how contingencies make us unhappy and how isn't it a good thing that God is in control of the universe and there's only one possible universe and it is the one in God's mind that he controls So I think Pullman is deliberately referencing the scene in a subtle way to underline this theme about contingencies good versus Milton contingencies bad. That's really interesting. It makes sense that contingency, if you are super into teleology, contingency would be your enemy. I find this so interesting because despite everything that happens in this book, I'd never really thought of the Mulefa world as Eden, mm-hmm. which is stupid now that I think about it. Oh, yeah. Like, it screams it to me when, when she was going in. I was like, this is so much like Paradise Lost. Um, but, you know, you have to have read Paradise Lost many times and be a boring person to be like, this is just like Paradise Lost. 
Um, so I don't think that Pullman is like, I will rest all of my, you know, literary worth on this one thing. Like, it's cool if you know about it, but it, it doesn't need it, I don't think. The other thing that comes right out of Paradise Lost for me is Father McPhail is like God and Father Gomez is like Jesus, but inverted. Okay, so Satan is like on his way from hell. Um, he's gotten to Earth and he is on his way to Eden. So wait, is Eden on Earth? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because it, it's the, in Utah, obviously. <laughs> 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 There's got to be many towns named Eden in America, right? Um, oh, there must be. Yeah. <laughs> in the Bible, Eden has a very specific location between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Like, it literally says that in Genesis. Like, it's, it's Mesopotamia. It's not there anymore. How convenient. Yeah, so he's going to Earth, and the point here... That, I'm, that I want to emphasize is that Satan has not done anything with his plan yet. And this is important to understand what Milton is laying out in the poem. God calls a meeting of all the like head spiritual entities. Okay. So it's like him in a board meeting with like, there's Gabriel and Michael and all the archangels. Jesus is there. And they're all like, God is like, guys. Uh, not of course, guys, only guys. <laughs> what are we, what are we saying here? Women? No, uh, guys, <laughs> there's going to be a big problem. Satan is going to, um, tempt humanity and humanity will fall into sin. This totally isn't my fault. Uh, this isn't a calibration error. I did everything perfectly. This is because they are weak. Like this literally is all laid. I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating here. He literally like says, it's not my fault that I knew this in advance and that this will happen. This is their own choice. Remember, there's only one future. There's no contingency. It can only be the way that God knows it is because God is all knowing. Again, Milton is a Calvinist. He's not Catholic. So there's no contingencies. The reason that we have choice, it's that God controls the universe and everything needs to glorify God. And so our choices cannot command God what to do. We can't choose Jesus to go to heaven or choose sin and go to hell because that makes our choice more powerful than God's choice. It has to be that God always knew we were going to go to heaven or hell and that we played our part in God's mind. That's the theology of Milton and part of the point of him writing, rewriting this Eden story so that we understand that. Just know that when I give this quote. So this would be God speaking. This is book three, I think, around line 210. He says, To expiate his treason hath not left, but to destruction sacred and devote he with his whole posterity must die. Die he or justice must, unless for him some other able and as willing pay the rigid satisfaction death for death. Say, heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? Which of you will be mortal to redeem man's mortal crime and just the unjust to save? Dwells in all heaven charity so dear? So he's calling like, volunteers, please. I need someone to fix this problem. Who's going to fix this problem? 
a lot like Father McPhail is asking, geez, I really wish we had somebody to murder a child. Does anybody <laughs> does anybody know about child murder here? Do we have a child murderer in the house? <laughs> and of course, who would jump up in this meeting when asked, who will trade death for death? Who has charity so dear? But Jesus, the old JC, says in answer to this around 240, because God continues to just go on and on and on about um, sin and death and stuff. He's so he's so boring. Um, Jesus answers, Behold me then, me for him, life for life, I offer. On me let thine anger fall. Account me man. I, for his sake, will leave thy bosom, and this glory next to thee freely put off, and for him lastly die. Well pleased, on me let death wreak all his rage. I am so confused. What's confusing? About, I don't know how to phrase this question. That So Jesus existed before he existed on earth. Hell yeah, man. This is, is confusing. Is that in the Bible? No, hell no, it's not in the Bible. Okay, okay, great, 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 great. <laughs> But like, because who was he supposed to be at that time? Was he still considered the son of God? Was he just like an angel who then like became the son of God because he volunteered for this? I I need answers. Yeah, good questions. So since God always existed and is the creator of all the universe and Jesus is one aspect of God and so is the Holy Ghost, they must have always existed, but were not, uh, Jesus was not embodied. And so this would be his um, eternal soul, which preexists his body. And, you know, his right. body is not his soul, so. But why was his eternal soul invited to this meeting? Pretty weird, right? And, like, seems like nepotism also to give him this really important job. <laughs> <I'm just saying. laughs> it is laying out Calvinist theology and kind of back writing it into the Eden story in an important way. This is part of Milton's project is to, he's really pushing back against Catholic sensibilities about what is happening at Eden what is happening before the birth of Jesus. And he's super pushing back against Jewish sensibilities about, you know, like the state of the human soul and what sin is and what was happening in Eden. And so he's taking all the theological assumptions of Calvinism and then writing them out in a narrative form that would, it would require that Jesus be there. And of course, God would know that Jesus needs to be you know, killed on the cross to redeem sin. And so like that had to be there from day one. And it's there before Satan tempts anybody. This is so important. Like it's so weird and bizarre and also makes a bad story, Milton. Like this <laughs> fucking spoilers, dude. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. So I just see like the whole volunteering of Jesus and Father Gomez and how he was like, I was practically made for this is like very, I laughed when I reread this and thought of this connection to Paradise Lost and how like terrible and grim God is in Paradise Lost and how that seems like Father McPhail to me and how he's like in this board meeting. It's just all very parallel to me, I think. I do sometimes wonder whether or not, like whether Philip Pullman did that on purpose or just like read paradise lost enough that you know he was inspired to do this scene and he doesn't know why yeah like it's in there yeah, subconsciously yeah like it's just sort of in his head <laughs> it could be um yeah it's really weird 
And I mean, Father Gomez is doing this for the same reason that Jesus is doing it too, right? Like he wants to stop sin from infecting the entire universe. And Jesus is going to be the thing that stops sin and death from ruining humanity and, and the project of the universe. That just reminded me what you were saying about Father Gomez, about one of my favorite quotes from that section of this book, where Pullman says um, about Father Gomez, the certainty that ran through his veins seemed to make him incandescent. Mm, It just like, it's so creepy. Yeah, I think Pullman captured that really well. Um, Even though the like church, the structure is set up to basically absolve Father Gomez of the murder he still has to be excommunicated yeah. in order to complete the task. It's like... It's like Mission Impossible, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you're captured, then then we had nothing to do with this. But it just makes me think, right, that on some level, the magisterium still knows that it's wrong, right? Like, Oh, they super know it's wrong. Yeah, because they have to forgive it. But even... But it's like they have to forgive it and even forgiving it is still not enough, right? Like, if they were really comfortable with what they were doing, they could forgive him, but they wouldn't, They he would still be able to be in contact with them or he could, like, come back to the church afterwards, at least, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it just seems like they, they've built this whole structure, but they, even they know that this forgiveness is not, is not really sufficient or, like, enough. I don't know that these people in the consistorial blah, blah, blah court are religious. Uh, that seems stupid to say, but like they want power. They want to keep their power. And if they have to talk and even like lie to themselves about how much they believe in God and heaven, they're going to do that. I don't think they actually care. I think these guys do. Some of them do. Because there's a lot in these chapters about how the oblation board and some of the other arms of their of the church are like in positions to take over how they're like how the consistorial court is the head of the church mm-hmm. and and how father mcphail his like number one goal is to make sure that doesn't happen because he's the head of the church i see yeah you know what i'm saying like i don't necessarily think that these people are good religious folk who believe what they're saying I think that's a really good point. Father McPhail is kind of a tyrant, and he probably believes that God is also a tyrant. Like, I don't think he believes a good thing is happening when they get into God's good graces or whatever. I think he's like, if I'm enough of a tyrant in God's name, I'll get to be a tyrant when I'm dead. Yes. Oh, that's so well put. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think he wants everybody to go to heaven and be happy. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if, if what he's got to do is excommunicate this guy who is literally like a weapon, he's like an instrument, a tool to their ends, and then he'll do that for the betterment of his institutional control and like his afterlife. And So like Father Gomez seems like a real true believer, but you don't think duper, McPhail yeah. is. Right. Okay. Yes. He believes that there is an authority and that he is serving the authority, but he believes in authority, not forgiveness, not heaven. (laughs) Okay. You know what I mean? These are tools of authority. Yeah. 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 Forgiveness is not the point. It's a thing that authority has 
Yeah. So that whole scene when he did the forgiveness, that's just so that Father Gomez. Well, I forget his name. Gomez. Gomez will go out and do the murder that McPhail wants him to do. It's manipulation. I see. In that way, the obsession with sin really is an obsession with control and making things be, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, like the way they should be. And it's not about the actual saved status of the people who would be sinning. It's almost like we're talking about the actual Catholic Church. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> okay, yeah. And then, so my one last thing that I wanted to say in this section, speaking of the actual Catholic Church, was just to bring up the idea of buying indulgences. Yeah. The connection between the preemptive penance and the buying of indulgences seems really clear to me. And so I think, obviously, like, Pullman was inspired by that. In the medieval church, basically, if you were rich, you could just give money to the church as a form of penance, basically. You, like, didn't even have to do anything unpleasant. You could just pay money in order to do shitty things, and then you would like be forgiven i mean the order was different right because you wouldn't pay the money in advance to do it you would do the shitty thing and then pay the money to be forgiven but um and that was like one of the things that led to the protestant reformation was people were pretty mad about that i mean again i am not super into religion i am not this is not my area of expertise alan feel free to correct me if you if i said anything wrong this is basically like me remembering my ap european history class uh yeah they don't like indulgences over on the uh on the protestant side of the coin uh this was useful to the church obviously it brings in lots of money but it was distasteful to all kinds of people like martin luther so preemptive penance is something that pullman kind of makes up but this kind of thing did happen though in ancient catholicism the most famous is an open proclamation to all christendom that Pope Urban II made at the Council of Claremont in uh, 1095. He gave absolution to all Christian fighters who would go on the crusade to reclaim Jerusalem. These are the famous crusades. And so if you went and died in the crusade, you would you were guaranteed to go to heaven. And if you killed any Sattersons or you know any infidel Muslims along the way, all the better. Those were not murders. Those were the work of God. Okay, yeah, so that's basically this, except, you know, instead of crusading a whole people, you're just just one child. child. Yeah, that's like... Fair. So is this morally better? You know, yeah, what's wrong with this, right? I mean, from a Um, trolley problem perspective, yes. This is the trolley problem. Yeah. Well, it it would only be the trolley problem if we were saying, well, maybe we should kill this kid. Or do some crusades. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> this is a lot of Catholic stuff, right, that we've talked about. The Catholics have penance because theologically, humans are involved in their own repentance and journey to sanctification. Like, this is something that you, as a follower of Jesus, are involved in. Calvinists believe that you being involved in it subtracts from the glory of God, And the primary focus should always be on God. And these kind of activities were why Calvin constructed the consistorial court in Geneva, which was how he ruled over the city-state that he was in charge of in Geneva. 
Oh, so the consistorial court is a real thing. And it's Calvinist. It's like super Calvinist because he's like, are you doing the right things? I think it's very significant because we've been saying this whole time how, oh, these books are like anti-Catholic and he went to Catholic school and this is him being mad about Catholic stuff. But this is a very Calvinist anti-Catholic thing. And so I think Pullman is doing something more complicated than maybe we've claimed before, but would be hard to know if you didn't know a lot about Christianity and like the subtle differences between these different sects. I don't know. I would say it's very clear that he is against organized religion. I agree. That is an important point. In theory, if it was just anti-Catholic, you could read it as like a Protestant critique of Catholicism, but it's not that. Right. I feel like especially how this book ends, it's very clear that what he's against is these people using faith to control everyone. Yeah. And I think that if you were a Catholic who was a sincere Catholic and really cared about someone writing a book that, you know, supposedly that everybody says this is an anti-Catholic book, and you read this, you would correctly know that when Father McPhail has a declaration that the church might have been formed for the very purpose of destroying dust, sin, and itself, so that God could exist in a sinless universe, that that is not Catholic at all. That 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 is super not Catholic because it uh, supposes that humanity has no part to play in its own redemption and no relationship with God. But it is super Calvinist because like the Calvinists believe that uh, like everything should exist for the glorification of God. And that means if if it means that we need to suffer enormously or be exterminated, then so be it. If God thinks that's the best thing, that is the best thing. And so this is a very Calvinist conclusion that McPhail comes to in a Calvinist court, but they're using Catholic tools to arrive at it. And so this is a complicated construction of different forms of Christianity that I think serve to like indict the entire project of Christianity in Europe. I do also think one of the things that's a big theme in this book and is really clearly shown here with Father Gomez is living your life for the now. Yeah. You know, like this is all we've got. Don't live it for your afterlife. And so it's interesting that this Father Gomez has spent his whole life preparing for something that might not have ever happened. Yeah. And also like, even if he accomplishes it, what kind of life is that? Right. It's yeah. terrible. Yep. That's all uh, my religious stuff this time. We have a note here about Will's magic power. And I do... I do feel like it's magic. Like the witches. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and how the witches like make themselves invisible with their intention. It's the same thing, I think. I, I, I think it's just I don't I don't think it's magic per se. I think it's just being just understanding that if you don't like stand out particularly, then no one notices you. Well, I uh, yes. But also, of course, like, ability to stand out or not right is socially constructed. And that is course, made more yeah. interesting in the context of the show, right, where Will is not white. And so in, cer oh, interesting. in certain contexts, mm, he, you know, is automatically othered and marked as, like, different or special. Yeah, I guess the one... The other kind of philosophical thing that I had 
to bring up was I thought at one point the Galavespians are talking, obviously like eavesdropping as spies and kind of talking about the Magisterium's moves that they're making. And Lady Salmachia talks about how killing Lyra was the logical thing to do. And of course the Magisterium would do it because they're very logical. I think that's like putting up a... I guess an interesting contrast between logic and morals, I guess. I don't, I don't, I didn't really have a point, but it just made me go like, huh, a little bit. Um, So I'm curious um, if anyone or like, especially Alan, like noticed that or had any thoughts on it. I noticed it for sure because I've been having a lot of talks with my youngest daughter about the use of the word logical um, she's in sixth grade now and she's like so smart. It's the, I have talks with her and sometimes she'll talk me into a philosophical corner and I'm like, huh, she will use logic as a euphemism for right thinking or good thinking. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it'll be like, uh, well, that's not the logical thing to do. And what she means is what you're saying, like the moral good thing to do like it's not logical to kill people and i'm like it's super logical to kill people (laughs) in various situations it's not right to kill them and that's not the same thing it's not necessarily right to kill them yeah well i guess it depends on yeah it depends on your morals which is the point it's uh like logic and morals is a fascinating thing to look at because certainly the way I see it is that they are no, they're not the same spectrum at all. Yeah, yeah they feel like orthogonal yeah. to each other. Yeah, like you, you, you can have something which is morally just to in a given set of morals and entirely illogical. You can have something that is morally unjust and entirely illogical as well. Unless your moral system is inherently based on how logically sound something is, which is a valid moral system. Not necessarily saying it's right or wrong, but, you know, that's you could form a moral system purely based on that because morals are arbitrary. Mm-hmm. So unless you dis- distinctly define them on the same axis, then they don't have to be on the same axis. It's like what Anya said about being forgettable or noticeable in society. Morals are socially constructed, which is, can be an irrational process, right? It's like... Yeah. It's wrong to spit in somebody's face. Well, like, why is that wrong? It's just yeah. like a is thing it we don't do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess in the text, maybe I was misleading when I said it. It felt like it was being set up kind of as, as like a binary. Like, I don't actually think that's what Pullman was saying. Like, I think Pullman agrees and the text is actually saying that they are orthogonal, right? Like, she's saying that they're doing this logical thing because... It makes sense to kill Lyra because she's in their way and they're not thinking about the moral implications of that. And so I guess maybe like that's actually the indictment that the the text is saying is that pure logic is a bad thing. Like you need some sort of moral compass or system. All logic is is like an, any system that is non-contradictory in its terms. Yeah. Right? It's internally coherent and consistent. 
Yeah, and then you can do anything. Like, you can construct anything out of that. But, like, as long as it doesn't contradict itself, it is technically logical. Mm-hmm. I think they are being logical given the terms of what they believe about the universe. They're like, if we kill this girl who is Eve, then the universe will not, you know, have sin in it anymore. Yeah. That is a logical conclusion given all of the predicates of their belief system. Yeah. But like, it's not moral. And I guess I do just, I find that interesting to too, us. right? Not to us. Because yeah. I think the like easiest and kind of most facile critique of religion by movement atheism, right, is that religion is not logical. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I also find that interesting. Well, and even then, like, it's logical given a set of assumptions. It just happens yeah. to be that those assumptions you could contend are not true or we don't have any evidence for, in which case the rest of the logic falls down. Yeah. But there's nothing inherently illogical about Christianity, for instance, as long as you have the right assumptions in place. Mm-hmm. It's like the most famous thing that of what you're talking about is like Occam's razor, which is all, often used by atheists. You know, given everything else, you want the least uh, complicated explanation or convoluted explanation of events. Occam was a monk who posited Occam's razor as a way to say, and therefore <clears throat> you can see that miracles are obviously real because they are the simplest explanation for how people are miraculously healed. So obviously, logically, it is the case that miracles are real because that is the simplest explanation for how miraculous healing works. That's kind of the point, again, when you're looking at these sorts of relatively elementary arguments against uh, organized religion. You know, I say this as someone who is, for all intents and purposes, an atheist, but you can't just look at you can't just be like, well, Occam's razor, because these, these, <laughs> this one is inherently more complex than this one. Well, who's defining what complex is? Yeah. How are you? Yeah. How are you structuring that? Like, if you're going to create a purely rationalistic, logical approach, then you need to define your parameters, mate. I can make an argument for basically anything and make it pass that test pretty easily by just redefining what complexity is that I'm talking about right now. It's fine, and which is exactly what Occam did. He said, well, given that miracles occur, it would right. be ludicrous to think that all of this chain of chain of other things and bits and bobs would lead to that when just miracles can happen. We know that X has happened. We know that X is impossible. It must be a miracle. That is the simplest explanation. And therefore, God exists. Like, therefore, boom. God. Done. Exactly. Water time. And it is logical. That is, con- that is a logical, consistent argument. But like, given the starting it, points, right? Does it correspond to what we see in the natural world? Given other assumptions, so yeah, like, not the same thing. I think Lady Samakia is also being sardonic when she's saying that. Um, mm. That's how I read it. She's like, "Oh yeah, these guys super logical." Well, just being practical, like you know, realistically speaking, if. I wanted to, you know, given X, Y, and Z, if I wanted to kind of cut the Gordian knot, kill a fucking girl. Why not? Mm-hmm. Just shoot her in the face in a different world. Chill. <laughs> I would do that. Just as a disclaimer, I wouldn't do that, but <laughs> one would. Okay. 
Um, well, now that I've completely derailed with religion section number two, um, what was your impression for the process by which Grumman got to know his demon? If you like spend enough time in Lyra's world, will your demon just kind of like pop out or do you have to be a shaman to kind of like extract your demon from yourself? I don't think we know the answer. I've always assumed it was because he was a shaman. Okay. And also based on something that happens later, I wouldn't necessarily call it popping out so much as becoming aware of it. I think they pop out with like a party popper sound and like birthday yeah. whistles. like yeah. Of like his chest. <laughs> a little bit of glitter. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Glitter just everywhere. You're like, oh, yeah. Hello. But then, so when you become aware of your demon, then it, like, is physically manifested somehow? Based on things that we know about Grumman and how his de- demon could go far from him, uh, I would assume he did something like what... No, we don't even know that yet. Shit. Um... In the show, during the consistorial court scene, they have Dr. Lensalius on trial, and he describes to them, for no good reason, the process by which, which is can go far from their demons. He doesn't know the particulars, but he knows that there's a place in the North Pole that if they go there and they cross the zone, then they can forthwith leave their demon far away from them. So I would assume something similar happened with Grumman. He crossed a area that his demon could not cross. Which and, forced and, it to come And out. thereby, yes, seeing that it was left behind or feeling that it was left behind, that that part of him was left behind, it made him... Uh, acknowledge it in a physical sense and then so my other question is do we know why the specters don't attack mary or father gomez when they're in chitagatsa i've always presumed that mary had some rebel angels following her around through chitagatsa keeping them away and that father gomez had some non-rebel angels following him around oh okay i i assumed similar um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the Mulefa and Mary. And one thing that I really love about them is how their society is shown. Like, the culture is just as advanced as ours, I would say. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, ma- maybe not their technology. They care about each other and they're, they're people, right? Um, but how it's shown very clearly that they work really closely with their seed pods and they they treasure them and they do what they can to plant more trees and they when they kill an animal to eat they use every single part of it and that's described to us so like it's important in their culture that they do that it reads to me like pullman was making uh comments about climate change before climate change was like a real thing in the collective consciousness before well, in the okay. 19, like late nineties, early noughties. No, I I hear what you're saying, but it wasn't that well known. It wasn't. I mean, like scientists it was. knew. Okay, sure, they did, but it wasn't talked about really, other than the ozone going away. But in this way, in this way that uh, talking about how it would be better if we lived, uh, uh, well, better for some things, whatever. This this closely with our environment and how they work together. So yeah. so closely with their environment because they have an intrinsic knowledge that they need these trees mm-hmm. to keep their culture. 
I think you see this too with the bears. There's like a explicit comment about and being rational creatures, they knew that they could not stay there and survive and therefore they need to find a different environment. Yeah. And it's there's kind of a underhanded implicit criticism there of like given that we can see that we are destroying our world, rational creatures would stop it. <laughs> and yeah. So stop it. Yeah, and that's part of like the Mulafa being good people and that the uh, Tulipi just come and steal stuff from them and destroy things and just, you know, use others' work for their own gain. And that makes them bad people. And aside from that, just um, another line that I love a lot and makes me love Mary so much is when she comes to the realization and she she sort of changes her thinking of the Mulefa as creatures to people. And she has that really great line where she says, it's not them, they're us. And I just really like that line. Well, I think that's it for this week's conversation. Join us next time. We'll be talking about chapters 11 through 14. If you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, send your emails to contact at hologroundmedia.com. And remember to always pack a second helmet for your migration south. Two. Three. Four. Sorry. <laughs> I was Did just, you forget uh, the number? Or? <laughs> I'm sorry for messing up your rhythm. No, I was just thinking about how whenever Alan says the word countdown, it's really hard for me not to start singing the final countdown. And then, yeah, I got lost in my own head. <laughs> That's funny. <Can> okay? <laughs> when? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm the one who's sick. <laughs> My uh, my oldest daughter and I like to play uh, Halo, and we yes. will play like the campaign together on co-op. And we love to. There's a version of it where you can play all the endings to each of the games in a row, and uh, and we will play the final countdown through each of the levels and be singing it at the top of our lungs as we're like I fucking jumping the the warthog yeah. through different things yes. trying to get to the ship. That is the cutest thing Alan, I've ever heard. That is heard. amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Truly, I am envious. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> okay. Anyway, his dark materials is serious. <laughs> oh, yeah, this whole podcast we're trying to do quickly, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To be fair, I re- I always read it wrong, same as I did with the alethiometer. So I've I've always read it as the... Um... God, I don't know now. Mulefa? Uh, I had an L and Mulefla or something like that. Oh. I had the L in somewhere. Mulefla. Weffler, that's what I read it as. The I just kind of like that. Weffler. It's cute. Anyway, 
I mean, Weffler. can you... Fuck. It, <laughs> it can't really be contained in words anyway. Like, you have to shake... You have to, Kultar like, words. make a fake trunk with your arm and shift it to the left when you say it anyway. I'm afraid that doesn't come across on podcasts. We could do a video <laughs> podcast just yeah. for it, but... I guess that means the motherfucker could never podcast. I know. That's really That's sad. sad. And yes, I did do that change on the fly. Thank you, Anya. Because <laughs> you're a fucking pedant, but thank you. Well, no, sentient and sapient are two completely different things. I don't know the difference. That is a you problem. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> educate me. No, sentient later. means to be able to feel. <laughs> sapient means to be able to think. Oh. Oh, I didn't Most that. things can cool. feel. Very few things can demonstrably think. In the way that, in the high standards that we have. Yes. As we have defined conscious. it. Yeah. Yes. And even then, it's complicated and kind of bullshit anyway, because we don't know what consciousness is, but nonetheless. It's Chapter dust. Chapter eight. It's True. Dust. We do know. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> Solved it. Let's write a paper. Yeah. <laughs> okay. A little I mean, gal of us being convalescent home. Or yeah. Nursing home. But he's fine with old Russian priests. I don't know. Like, no, I, I understand. But yeah, but the Russian priest isn't like a hero in the book, like a good guy. What, good you know people what can't be old? No, Fuck. that's what I'm saying. I No, I'm, saying, I'm not saying it's good. I can't I'm believe saying... you said this. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. That's if you're breathing nothing but straight oxygen for a long time. But it can have beneficial effects if you're doing it short term. Okay. <clears throat> like they found that breathing 100% oxygen nullifies a migraine within minutes. Oh, wow. Um, things well, like that. Well, that's because that. migraines are why. mostly um, uh, vasoconstriction within the brain. That's why some of the most powerful anti-migraine drugs are vasodilators. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, why don't they just give people who suffer migraines like a tiny oxygen tank to carry around? But I guess maybe it's too explosive. Yeah, that would never go badly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much exactly that. <laughs> Whoops. Not predation, herbivory. That's the word when it's a plant. Um, Sorry, what was that? What was that word again? Herbivory? Herbivory? There we are. Ugh, Got fine. the H. Whatever. Well done. Oh no, it's herbivory. You're right. Yeah. It's, Thank it's you. The American You're outnumbered here, Francis. <laughs> I'm outnumbered by. Uh, no, no, I'm. Wait, really? Canadians? I, I would, I would say the H. Eat herbs? Canadians say it wrong too. Remembering that America's the weird one. Yeah. Here. Herbs. The right one, yeah. Um. <laughs> anyway, the point is, yes, plants make Long all sorts of anti-herbivory <laughs> compounds. Um, I hate that so much. In the Magisterium in a little bit, but first, mortification of the flesh, which is a very technical term for whipping yourself. Um, <laughs> about or needs also i feel like wouldn't you be less good at glorifying god if you were super sleep deprived like you want to be on your game for that (laughs) are you suggesting monks had a a bad work-life balance (laughs) i'm saying that they need to unionize it's very clear that by achieving a better work-life balance you'll actually increase your productivity Oh, good. Yeah. Are you making a religious argument for better work-life balance? Because uh, <laughs> yes, better than nothing. 
Okay. That's how I think about every choice. Yeah, true, true. I could be doing a crusade right now. Could be doing. A Should I have things. this extra biscuit? I mean, the alternative is doing a crusade. So yeah. I yeah, exactly. Extra okay. biscuit, I guess. <laughs> Do we really need to talk about any of this? Um, okay. I uh, mean, that's just a general statement about the whole podcast, isn't it? <laughs> that's... Yeah. There, I feel like there are a lot of good outtakes on this <laughs> from this recording session. Does anyone win when everyone's talking about epistemology? Nobody wins. It's a loser. <laughs> <laughs> Next episode, we'll be talking about chapters that I have not decided yet. We'll um, be talking about chapters. <laughs> please not five chapters again, please. Uh... Okay, well, 11 is an Ama chapter, so... Oh, God, Ama. I'm sure you're very excited about that. So we'll only be reading that. Just chapter 11. (laughs) (laughs) 10-minute podcast. Fuck. Okay, done. You didn't remember Um, it, but Ruta Scotty shows up, too. It's weird. Oh, Jesus. Just all the favorites. Some, like, Will stuff. 